0: Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek, and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, One Picture at a Time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs, and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes, and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Films discussion. This is episode number 27 for November 2013. My name is Scott, the intern here at the show. The true talents, Derek and Casey, will be along in a few moments. Since November is my birthday month, I got to pick the film for this month's episode, And that's The Devil Rides Out from 1968. The film was directed by Terrence Fisher and is based upon the 1934 novel of the same name by Dennis Wheatley. On screen, we have one of Hammer Film's biggest stars, Sir Christopher Lee. Now co-starring with Lee, we have Charles Gray and Leon Green. Now, during my research for this film, I found some rare audio from 20th Century Fox. Now, Fox was the U.S. distributor for the film, and they were a bit worried about the film's title when Hammer delivered the film to them. This audio was taken from a board meeting on how to market the film to U.S. audiences. Let's take a listen. All right, the next item on the agenda
0: is the new film that we received from Hammer. Now, we have an issue
1: with this one, and it's the title, The Devil Rides Out. Well, to me, you know, this sounds like a Western film. But when I took a gander at it, well, it's the farthest from a Western film you can get. Plus, I'm not sure Mr. and Mrs. America will be liking a film without any American accents. So I only see one option here. Now, I like what those folks over at Embassy did with that Godzilla film, inserting Ray Burr, and I thought we could fix both problems here the same way. I had the boys down in editing work something up for us. Now, this trailer is very rough, and yours truly is doing the voiceover, but the final product, yeah, it'll be a bit more polished. Hey, boys, roll it. In the British Old West, Sheriff Duke Ritchie and Mayor Rex have a problem. To our reunion, Rex. No questions?
2: Hocus Pocus, mumbo jumbo, black magic. Rex, do you believe in evil? That's an idea. Huh? Do you believe in the power of darkness? As a superstition. Now, there you were wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition, it is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night.
1: Deputy Simon has fallen into a dark posse led by rancher Charles Gray. To help solve this problem, Duke must call upon the forces of good to help him the Ghost Riders the ghost riders are led by their leader cahill when she was dying
2: the last thing she said on earth was go get him jd and i've been going and getting them ever since till it's no longer just my job it's
1: loose cannon, Frank Taby.
2: Fourth lesson. Punches are like bullets.
3: If you don't make the first ones count, Scotty, you might just be finished. <laughs> i remember that. And the drifter.
1: And she's not asking for God's help. She's asking for mine. Together with Sheriff Ritchie and Mayor Rex, the Ghost Riders take aim at the deadliest outlaw that ever rode the British West. The man from the depths of hell, the goat of Mendez himself. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Oh, yeah? We'll take this. Starring Christopher Lee, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and in his feature film debut as the devil, Scott Bayo. It's The Devil Rides Out from 20th Century Fox. Right, so what did everybody think?
4: Sir, there are many things wrong with that. For starters, Scott Bayo is only about seven years old. I don't think he's ready to play the devil.
1: Seven, you say? Well, anyone here have any uh, other ideas?
3: Well, we could just change the name of the film. Then people wouldn't think it was a
1: western. Well, I guess that could work. We could just call it The Devil's Bride. Good meeting, everyone. Hey, Judy, Bayo's only seven, you say? Well, I guess the world's not ready, but their kids are going to love them.
2: Rex, do you believe in evil? as an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now, there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why, on one night of one year, should these people live in mortal fear? Christopher Lee as de Richelieu, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. My God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex. Eyes, eyes, once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen
3: carefully to what I say.
2: This is MacArthur, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you slipping away. The Devil Rides Out from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's famous novel fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. Hold oh, quickly! Back to back! Join hands! You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. If we once catch sight of his face.
5: According to Marcus Hearn, Hammer was looking for a new franchise, maybe a new series of films to produce. They've made their mark with the Frankenstein and the Dracula films, but the 60s come along and it's time to find something different. And Dennis Wheatley was that something different. Dennis Wheatley is a prolific author of thrillers, occult type stories, things along those lines. At one point was called the public thriller writer number one of the 1930s by Phil Baker, the guy who wrote his biography. This man's influence on British literature was huge and was even a friend of Christopher Lee. And it was Christopher Lee's urging that brought Wheatley to the hammer fold. The Devil Rides Out is the second Dennis Wheatley film undertook by Hammer. And that's what we're talking about on this month's episode of 1951 Downplace. I'm Derek and I've got Scott and Casey here. How's it
1: going, guys? Hello. Hello. I was just going to say this was my birthday pick. There you go. There you go. Now, why did you pick this guy? This one had um, shown up on a couple of the voting that we have done for our listener pick month. And it had been nominated by some listeners, but had never gotten very many votes. So I was curious to go and do a little bit of research about it because it had the interesting title of The Devil Rides Out, not knowing too much about it. So I just decided to... Uh, go on my own and look up a little bit about the film and it sounded interesting so that's why I picked it. I had never seen it before the other night watching it for this show. It wasn't the James Bond stuff that drew you to it? Didn't even know that uh, there was a (laughs) massive James Bond and a minor Disney connection. Uh oh.
4: What about you? Triple threat. (laughs) What about you, man? This is a movie that I have always had on my list that I wanted to watch Hammerwise, but just never got around to it. And there was no particular reason why. It's just that you know, with all the movies that I have to watch on a schedule, this one just never made it in there. So I was pretty excited when Scott picked this one out because it's you know it's one I've been meaning to watch for years since I first discovered Hammer flicks, based almost entirely on the title because the title is cool. But also, once you read the plot stuff. There's not a lot of cult-based films out there, which is kind of cool. So, well, not It's not too cool that there's not a lot of them out there, but it's a cool subject that doesn't get dabbled in a whole lot. So it was cool to see Hammer go that route. You
5: know, this was the first time for me as well. I picked it up on Blu-ray when it came out on Blue over in the UK, and I purposely did not get into it because I was hoping we'd eventually cover it here on the show. And then I started hearing some complaints about – some of the digital enhancements, some of the special editioning of the movie. I didn't want to be exposed to it until we actually would, we're going to have a chance to sit down and rap about it here on down place. Are you saying this film got the Lucas treatment? Uh, just a teeny tiny little bit, not nearly as overt, but yeah, there's a little bit there. Now the versions that you guys watched, I
1: believe were the DVD release. The version that I watched was from the UK release box set of a whole bunch of Hammer films. Yeah, mine was
4: a DVD release too, but it wasn't from that box set I don't think.
5: So it'll be interesting to kind of compare a little bit some of the scenes. I the Blu-ray <laughs> for a movie that seemed to upset a number of fans, the Blu-ray certainly made it easy because there is an actually a special feature called I forget the name of it now, but it actually goes through and details every single thing they did <laughs> uh, in terms of digital enhancements that they're calling it. So it's really easy to kind of pick out what is different, what is new in this release. So I'm interested to talk about that with you guys once we get to it. But we probably have to talk a little bit about the movie itself first to kind of let our listeners know a little bit more about this film that American audiences did not see as The Devil Rides Out. They saw it as – what was the American title? Was
4: it The, the Devil Devil's- Rides In.
5: <laughs> right, because that sounds so much less like a Western. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh, To the Devil a Bride, isn't it? The Devil's Bride. The Devil's
5: Bride, that's right. Yeah. Uh, to the Devil a Daughter is actually another Wheatley adaptation by Hammer that was done a few years later that pretty much caused Wheatley to pull the plug or the estate to pull – and it didn't work out. Anyway, uh, <laughs> The Devil's Bride is how it was released here in the States because America thought the Devil Rides Out sounds way too much like a Western, and it's just too big a budget of a movie for a Western, so we got to call it something different. One of the things that we've done here on 1951 Down place is kind of decided to go with the American titles when we talk about the movie, but I'm good calling it The Devil Rides Out. I mean, it's just a better title anyway.
1: Oh, I agree. I, I like the title The Devil Rides Out, and every place that I've seen reference to it calls it that. There's just very few few of the sites will say, oh, yeah, it was also called this.
5: Now, this movie's got another very interesting element for me, at least it kind of drew me. The screenplay is by Richard Matheson.
4: Yeah, I saw that. I caught that in the uh, opening credits. Then they c- popped in there, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Although it's not surprising because it's more surprising, I think, for v- listeners, if they've never paid attention to it on how many movies that we've all come to love, horror movies especially, that are actually written by Richard Matheson. There are a ton of them out there.
5: I mean, he's a a legend, really, in the horror genre. I mean, without Matheson, we wouldn't have I Am Legend. We wouldn't have, you know, so many iconic movies and stories, especially from the 70s. I feel like a lot of his better adaptations or or the film work that he did was from the 70s. And it's just, He did
1: a lot of TV work, too. In fact, one of Mm -hmm. my favorites of his is the TV movie Duel.
5: Duel is fantastic, as is Trilogy of Terror with the little Zuni doll. I mean, that's just amazing. So, But then he also did Jaws 3D well (laughs) i've got a soft spot for that one but whatever Uh (laughs) so it was very cool that matheson's involved now he was not the first choice the screenplay was originally written by somebody else the studio and the money people looked at it and said this screenplay is way too british I don't know what that means, because the person who wrote the first screenplay wasn't American as well. But they said it was too British, so they went and got Matheson, who went and did his thing and created the screenplay that I think is a pretty solid piece of work. And then they turned it over to Terrence Fisher, you know, mainstay at Hammer. I guess I didn't really realize that Fisher directed this film. I mean, we've got Mr. Curse of Frankenstein, Mr. Forward Dracula himself. And to complete the picture, we've got or complete the sound. We've got James Bernard doing the score.
1: Of Hammer Star Power was behind the camera on this one.
5: They're setting it up to be the next big thing. You've got all these important pieces and players from the Dracula and Frankenstein films in place. And then you've got Christopher Lee himself as the heroic lead. I was going to say,
1: including Dracula and Frankenstein. <laughs>
5: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm on P- Team Cushing. Everybody knows that. I'm on Team Cushing. Peter Cushing, my man. I've always struggled with Christopher Lee. I think he's good, but... I have an issue with separating the artist from the art, and he's, over the years, said some disparaging things about his work with Hammer and that sort of thing, and, you know, I've always kind of felt he was kind of standoffish, and he's certainly standoffish in this as well, but I was invested in him as a hero in this, and I, I think this is the first time that I've seen Lee in a leading role where I was really on board with him, so I'm all in, or at least I should have been.
1: I don't know, I, I kind of like, uh, there's another one of the main characters in this film that that I really enjoy and that's uh, Charles Gray. Do we want to talk about that now or do we want to wait?
5: I know you're waiting for it.
1: <laughs> I'll wait if you don't want to talk about it now.
5: <laughs> oh, we can. No, we can. You know, we're talking players, why not? Why do you like Charles Gray so much?
1: Because he's in the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
5: Uh-huh. Yes. And well, he <laughs> is. <laughs>
1: but he's also in two James Bond films. <laughs> I want to be dramatic for the music to kick in. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <You> <laughs> he's
1: in uh, Diamonds Are Forever and You Only Live Twice.
5: you know that he was not the first choice for this film role?
1: I have read about that,
5: yes. And you know who the first choice was? That I don't know. Goldfinger villain, Gert Frittleby?
1: Yes, I, I did hear that. Did it. I say that right? Uh, yeah, I did read about that. Now that you say that, I'd forgotten about that.
5: And then, of course, Christopher Lee is in Man of the Golden Gun. So this is just a James Bond reunion as well, yes. kind of a little mini Bond thing going on. What's interesting is that I've seen it noted or reported that Ian Fleming himself, the Creator of Bond, the novelist, was influenced by Dennis Wheatley's novels. So, kind of bring it all together.
1: Charles Gray also plays Bond's biggest villain. He's Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever, which is now back in the um, MGM control. Right. Yeah, I just saw that the other day online. So he he actually in the James Bond universe is a good guy. In You Only Live Twice, he's a um, he plays Henderson, who's a source of information for Bond. And then in Diamonds Are Forever, which is made just uh, four years later, he's now Blofeld, the, the main big bad guy. That's only
5: happened a couple of times in the Bond universe, where an actor comes back and plays on the other side, right?
1: It's it's very rare that it, other than characters playing or actors playing Bond, that they you know his support staff basically. Most of the bad guys you know, are one and done type of things.
5: Thought there was a. I wish I could remember the guy's name. He was in one of the Timothy Dalton films, I think, but he was also on the other side in a, in the Pierce Brosnan film. I might be wrong. Uh-huh. But then, I don't know. Of course, it's not like
1: this is the Bond cast or anything. <laughs> well, and he's also known, I would imagine, just as well known for playing uh, Dr. Scott in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. That's where I knew him from. Yeah. If I had some toilet paper, I would be throwing it now.
4: <laughs> Castles don't, don't have bones, asshole. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Uh, So that's our good guy (laughs) and our bad
4: guy. (laughs) And that's our show, folks. We'll see you next time. All right.
5: (laughs) Thank you for listening to the James Bond Rocky Horror (laughs) Hammercast.
1: No, I thought Charles Gray was outstanding in this film. His eyes, man. Yes. Oh, yeah. They made a lot of use of them, too. (laughs) Which I thought was unusual because Christopher Lee, in, in the roles that he's done for Hammer, it's his eyes. I mean, not just as Dracula, but also as the mummy. It was his eyes they always focused on, and then in this film, it's Charles Grey.
5: No, in this one, they focus on Lee's voice. Yes. There's a scene where he's doing some hypnotism, and holy crap.
2: Look into the mirror, son. Look into the mirror. Keep looking, and listen to me. You have been hurt, and your mind is troubled. But you're with your friends now, and there is nothing more to worry about.
5: Christopher Lee should have been, could have been, you know, a stage hypnotist with that voice and the way he does it. It's just amazing. And that pencil thin <laughs> mustache. The mirror. Yeah, look into the mirror. Yes.
4: I gotta say Christopher Lee was rather dashing in this movie. He was uh-huh. just straight up dapper it was pretty awesome <laughs> like you said i was all in
5: man i bought him i'm like yeah you, you go chris Lee. i i'd watch more movies featuring you as this character or like you know just do it man i'm on board
4: we're jumping ahead i know but this i loved his the character of count de richelieu because he was such a uh a font of occult information for no apparent reason whatsoever. I, I was you never
5: really—you never get to see any of it. He's always like, "You guys go do this. I'm going to go to
1: the library." And then he leaves the movie for a little while, and he comes back. Okay, let's go. I yeah. was trying to figure out what he did for a living. Was he was he like a someone that fights the occult? Was that his job, or what? W- what did he do?
4: Yeah, I don't know if he was like a recovering occultist, or if he was just a <laughs> hobbyist, or what. <laughs>
5: A hobbyist, yes. Well, he's the Duke Derishno. I don't know. What what do dukes
4: do? I, I don't know. <laughs> Aren't they just like title holders of some sort, like minor politicians more than anything? I don't know. He
1: owns land? I'm not <laughs>
4: –
5: I don't yeah. really know. I just uh, like
1: – I like the idea of the hobbyist. So uh, here's how my model trains and here's all my occultist stuff. <laughs> that's Right. <laughs> <laughs> No, he was great. And Lee's actually gone on
5: record in saying at one point he would have loved to have gone back to do more or maybe even remake this one and do that character just as a little bit older, a little bit more mature, and then use more modern technology for the effects. This character actually appears in a series of novels by Dennis Wheatley. This was his second novel in the series itself. I'm seriously considering going and tracking some of these down just to kind of see if they're as good as the film. Uh, well, these were written originally in the 30s and lasted up through the 70s.
1: Well, this role for Christopher Lee in this film was probably my favorite uh, Christopher Lee performance that we've seen so far.
4: Oh yeah, yeah, it's up there definitely. This role's a really big standout. In the Dracula roles, his first couple times Dracula, you know, definitely strong roles and they were great. But then when you get into later ones and you can you start to see the drama show up on screen with him and Hammer and whatnot. But this one is it's a really good showcase on why Hammer stuck to him so close. So.
5: Yeah, I mean, he was invested in this movie as well. Like I said, he was a friend of Wheatley's. He really was pushing Hammer to get involved with Wheatley. I've read, despite what we talked about in last month's episode where we said Lee said he loved that movie the most, I've read elsewhere where Lee said that this is his favorite film by Hammer. So, I mean, he was invested. And you can tell it's not just him going through the motions as he would do in some of the later Dracula films. He's there. He's bought in. I think he's great. I think he's still a little scary. Like said, he knows stuff that most people probably shouldn't.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> or at least knows um, where to go to find information about it.
5: That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and he never sleeps. You notice that's like, oh, I'll take a nap later. <laughs> you look tired. Yeah, 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 whatever. I'll, I'll sleep later.
4: Yeah, things like when he opens up a basket in the closet and he says, oh, they were getting ready to perform the rite of the black cockerel and the white hen. And I'm like, yeah, because everybody knows that information. <laughs> You had to be a little bit more than a casual acquaintance with the occult to know that. Yeah.
5: yeah, and and the way he speaks and the way he delivers, it's all very, it's very Christopher Lee. It's very yeah. proclamation style. Very, I'm Christopher Lee and you're not. Damn it! You, know? <laughs> why do you want to look in the telescope? I don't. Oh, all right. You know. <laughs> you know. I wanted to see Christopher Lee and Charles Gray like get into a fist fight. That's how much I love these two main characters, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, Now, they're not the only characters in the film. And it's not just about these two. We've got Leon Green playing Rex Van Ryan. We've got Patrick Mauer playing Simon Aaron, who's actually voiced. um, And actually, I'm sorry to go back to Rex Van Ryan. He was voiced by Patrick Allen, who was in Night Creatures earlier with Peter Cushing and all them. Uh, who else we have in the film? Uh, we've got Tanith played by Nike. Is that how we want to pronounce it? Nike? <laughs> Just that, do it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so she appears in the film as well. I mean, I loved, I think the cast was great. I was on board with everybody.
1: Yeah, it was really uh, strong. Everybody but Uh-oh. the Eatons.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well.
5: Well, okay. I mean, Vicky Lawrence was horrible. I <laughs> I didn't have a problem with the performance. I had a problem with the characters. I felt like the characters were all kind of, I, I, scatterbrained see, and kind of light. In the when head. she
4: broke into the, from Mama from Mama's family, character too, it just didn't fit. I see.
5: I don't blame that on the acting. I blame that on the characterization. Yeah. I, I,
1: <laughs> I didn't like Sarah Lawson. I mean, she did look like Vicky Lawrence to me the whole movie, and it just distracted from me. But I didn't like her performance. I definitely didn't like uh, Paul Eddington. I thought he was too mamby pamby and didn't care about anything that was going on. He just wanted to get out of there. And I just, you know, these these are supposed to be your relatives, your family. You're supposed to be standing up and helping these people. But I didn't buy his performance at all.
5: I I bought the performance. I just didn't like the characters. You know, I think they were doing what they were supposed to do.
1: But then, can I uh, do my minor Disney connection? Oh, yeah. And that's uh, Peggy Eaton, Rosalind Landor. Played the little girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's gone on to voice several video games, uh, including the Incredibles video game. Uh, She's also a voice in the Connect uh, Disneyland Adventures. She was in the Disney movie Teacher's Pet as the Blue Fairy. Does she do mostly voice work now? She does mostly voice. uh, In fact, if you look at her uh, IMDB, she's pretty much done voices. Uh, She was in the Tasmania TV series in the early 90s. She did a character on the real <laughs> Ghostbusters. So since about, 1990- <laughs> since about 1990, she's just done voices. So we've got our Disney.
5: We got our Bond out of the way. We talked a little bit about the cast and a little bit about the crew. Shall we talk about the story? Sure. Take it away, Scott. You <laughs> podcast legend, you.
1: <laughs> well, I'm probably going to butcher some of the names, uh, including Christopher Lee's character's name. I have a hard time pronouncing that. I will Duke, warn everybody that. De Richelieu. Duke Richelieu. Duke de Duke <laughs> You, you want to just call him personally? Duke Richelieu. <laughs> I can call him Duke.
5: <laughs> All right, that works for me. Makes it sound like a western, but you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we're, we start off the film. He's out to grassy field to watch an airplane land with Rex in it. Who um, Rex just pops out of the airplane, and the very first thing he's like, "Hey, we're Simon."
2: Hello, Nicholas. Hello, Rex. How are you? Fine, fine. Where's Simon? Well, when did you last see him? Three months ago. Three months? Do you think he's in trouble? Wouldn't you have told me if he
5: was?
1: We'd dive right in, man. Yeah. No little chit-chat. How you doing? Like, where's Simon? To point out, this
5: is set like in the 30s. So it's like this old, this is 30s style... It's Can a biplane in the Yeah, exactly.
1: Simon is Christopher Lee's character's ward. Simon's father and Christopher Lee were in some sort of battle or war where Simon's father passed away and the duke was going to look after Simon. So Rex is Simon's uncle? There's some sort of relationship that didn't quite get explained to me of how they were related.
4: I honestly couldn't tell I was never able to pinpoint exactly how Rex was in that whole little group and whatnot, if he was a relative or what, because especially early on, his entire purpose of being there was, huh? What are you, what are you guys talking about? Where are we?
1: <laughs> yeah. He he was there to bring out the exposition of what's going on. Yeah. yeah. So the plane lands a little biplane, and uh, they go off looking for Simon. The Duke knows where Simon is. He's at this party at this house that uh, Simon has a friend, his friends with. So they go straight to there because I guess the Duke also knows of this person. So they go there, they, they get in and they start looking around and they meet uh, different people, including Mokata. Is that how it's pronounced? Mokata. Mokata. And Tanith. And uh, Tanith then spills the beans a little bit when she kind of asks, I thought there was, wasn't supposed to be more than 13 people here at this meeting. Immediately, that sets off warning flags in the Duke and his eyebrows raise, you know, his spidey sense is tingling. There's something not right going on here. And since the Duke and Rex are supposed to be protecting Simon, they try to get him to leave with him. But uh, Simon doesn't want to leave. And then all of a sudden, Duke realizes, oh, you've got a uh, telescope upstairs. Give me five minutes. I want to look at it. You have an observatory, right? I'd like to go look at it and just barrels up the stairs couldn't even (laughs) wait they run up there there's some strange markings on the floor to begin with of a goat head which also sets off some warning flags for the duke he goes running in immediately opens up a closet door finds a basket with a cock and a hen in it and immediately deduces the whole thing of what's going on and that they're all occultists and
5: (laughs) it's a little less abrupt than that i mean they're (laughs) <laughs> nice etchings you have on the wall. Well they're just decorations. oh well, I like how you brought it down to the floor. Uh huh. Hey, what's that <laughs> sound in the closet? No, don't go look in there. It's where I keep my <laughs>
1: Yeah. It wasn't much faster than that. No, that's longer. true. Yeah, it was
5: pretty darn quick. Now Bernard Robinson did the production design and you can totally tell. It's got that lush kind of Dracula feel, especially in the room. You know, yeah. I almost felt like when Christopher Lee walked into the room and he looks down and sees everything on the floor, he's like, I've seen that before. You know, that kind of – that used to be on the floor of my castle back when I was –
1: hey. Yeah, I, you think know? I, I died here.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've always found it fascinating watching horror movies that these people live in these giant palatial estates and whatnot. And then especially in movies like this, just where my nerd mind goes when you're watching these things. and You're watching these and they're running back and forth between Count de Richelieu's mansion and the other guy's mansion and some other mansion out in the country with – Vicky, where Vicky Lawrence lives and stuff like that. When you think about it in reality, they're probably traveling 40, 50 miles between these houses.
5: Yeah. So we meet a character, he flew himself in for the movie.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're all they're all pretty well off. Well, as soon as the, the Duke sees the rooster and the hen in there, he's like, You fool. I'd rather see you dead than meddling with black magic. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and of course, then we get uh, Rex asking, Huh? What's going on? I love the line where he says... (laughs) I love the line where the Duke says, Simon here is playing the most dangerous game known to mankind. And of course, my movie background goes, well, isn't the most dangerous game is where man hunts man? But that's... Yeah,
5: I've seen that before.
1: (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) What's that have to do with chickens? (laughs) (laughs) But then... You know, I I love that, you know, Simon is, like, trying to get him to leave, and he's not going to leave. The Duke just takes matters into his own hands and just decks him. (laughs) (laughs) There's
5: a lot of knockout punches in this movie, actually, and uh, I think Christopher Lee delivers them beautifully. I love the. (laughs) You're not going to leave? Fine. Fine.
4: Christopher Lee is such a man of action in this movie. My words aren't working on you, so
1: Boom! Yep.
5: <laughs>
4: so, Look at the birdie clack.
1: So they, and then they take him out. Yeah, Rec, Rex scoops him up, and the three of them run down the stairs. And of course, the the butler tries to stop him, and Christopher Lee just shoves the butler out of the way across the table. And <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, I mean, you've got Christopher Lee, who's what, like six foot seventy or something. I mean, he's this giant <laughs> yeah. of a man. And then you've got you know Leon Green also who's Not quite as, at least not for lack of trying. There are stories that he uh, actually tried to make himself taller than Christopher Lee. There's a a documentary on the Blu-ray in which Patrick Maurer, who played Simon Aaron, is talking about The time that he walked in on Lee and Green's dressing room and found him tearing up newspapers and shoving it into his shoes because that bugger Christopher Lee is not going to be taller than I am on screen. (laughs) So, I mean, you've got these two giants of a man just barreling through the house. One's got a body slung
1: over his shoulder, shoving the butler out of the way. (laughs) So the three of them rush back to the Duke's house. And uh, that's where we get the first uh, time that uh, the Duke is hypnotizing somebody as he's hypnotizing Simon using a serving tray mirror (laughs) which was great yes (laughs) yeah he basically hypnotizes him to say that uh, he was going to stay there he was going to sleep till 10 o'clock the next morning he was going to forget everything he knew about the group and not go back there ever he then sends him to bed but before he sends him up to his own bedroom he gives him a crucifix to wear around the um Around the neck, which again, thinking of past Hammer, it's like, Christopher Lee, should you be handling that? I know, right?
5: I felt totally uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) Every time Lee pulls out the cross, I'm like, dude. (laughs) But he puts that over Simon's neck and Simon goes up to bed. And then we get another scene where Rex is needing more information. So the two of them talk and Christopher Lee gives this speech of you know the black magic and how it has all of its powers can be drawn on at any time after dark and... As this is going on, we go up to Simon in the bedroom, his eyes immediately pop open as he's under some other control that we can't see. He grabs the crucifix, and I thought at first he was going to just rip it off of his neck, but no, he starts choking himself with it.
4: I had to chuckle at that scene, too, because just because of the way they shot it and everything. The scene and the story, story-wise, it all fit perfectly. It was great, but it cracked me up when they're shooting it. Well, as far as the cinematography goes, because that guy obviously had a lot of chain to work with. So it took him a while to get it <laughs> twisted around his fingers. It was funny because you could tell it was it was kind of like, oh, it's still going. Still not there. Still not there.
1: <laughs> that's, that's some pretty strong magic that you're going to get somebody in your control to choke themselves. But that's not an easy thing to do. Not that I've tried or anything, but (laughs)
5: Scott may have just (laughs) overshared.
1: But then uh, the Duke's butler goes into the room to see what's going on. And, you know, eventually he comes down to say that, you know, he had heard Simon was having problems and he gives the crucifix back to Christopher Lee, who immediately panics, like, where's Simon? And he's like, he's gone. So you fool. You fool. I I love it when he calls people fools. And it's like, you fool. Yeah. (laughs) And then he immediately apologizes for it. It's not your fault. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then Rex and the Duke get back in the car and they head back to the mansion to go look for Simon. So they now break into the house that was having the party earlier. They look all over for Simon. They can't find him. And then the Duke says, well, what about upstairs back where the observatory was? So the two of them go upstairs. They start complaining that it's getting colder. They're looking around. They still can't find him. But then all of a sudden, the goat's head in the center of the room starts to mist, and this man shows up with a turban on and just. I don't he was, think he did. He didn't have he. Had, no, that's right. He didn't have a turban. I'm sorry. Unless you wear a turban somewhere different than we do. Yeah, that's true. He didn't have a turban on. He was, <laughs> but he was wearing, you know. I don't want to call it a cloth diaper, but I can't think of any other term for it. A nappy. <laughs> I don't want to he's be offensive. a
5: loincloth kind of thing. Yeah. Thank
1: yeah. you. So he's wearing this red loincloth, and he's got the most evil eyes you've ever seen. They're creepy, man. Yes. Yeah. Very creepy. And, of course, the Duke's like, don't look into the eyes. I thought he was
4: pretty great. He was pretty creepy, but at the same time, it was... There was like a feeling that he couldn't decide on which facial expression he wanted to go with. But at the same time, it kind of added to the creepiness because you could tell you didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Because at one point he'd be smiling. The next thing he's doing the stern stare and then he might be half a smile. And (laughs) you could see it kind of morphing on his face as as they were focusing on him.
5: I should go back and maybe listen to the commentary or something. But those eyes actually kind of looked painted on at points. They didn't look right. So he's got this expression that's not quite settling. His eyes just don't look like, Yep. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. But
1: but Rex, of, of course, is looking at him, and he starts to make his way towards the creature. The Duke grabs his arm, tries to hold him back, and then realizes he's still holding the crucifix that Simon was wearing earlier. And he throws it at the man in the mist, and then poof, he's gone. And Rex immediately comes back to his senses, what little there are.
5: Now, this is referred to as a genie, this character, the African-American that's standing there, in one of the special features they call him a genie. I suspect, though, after having learned a little bit about Dennis Wheatley, he's just described as a black man in the novel. And something that Wheatley did do in some of his works – and you see this in other stories as well, period – White is good, black is bad, you know, good versus evil. So you talk about this black man that's just representative of evil. It's a little uncomfortable to kind of look at it that way, but I do suspect just kind of based on the era that that might have been in the novel that way, or at least in the novel just described as a black man. I've seen other adaptations of other stories in which a black character, the black man is this Force of evil, but instead of actually having an African American, they actually just wrap him up like in black tarp or something like that. It's just, did you have an issue with the race at all? Did that come into the play here for you guys, or are we totally past that now as a
1: people? I I did not even. I was more worried about uh, you know describing his uh, wardrobe just earlier than his skin color. So
4: <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I hate to make it sound like. I'm trying – now I'm all self-conscious about it. I would say it added a, an air of mystery to it because with the costume he is wearing and stuff like that, you get kind of a sense – it adds to the feeling of of voodoo and something dark and mysterious going on because of the history of that culture with their involvement of voodoo and things like that. that so it kind sense. of added to it.
1: Well, uh, I was brought back to the Stranglers of Bombay. I thought he was more Indian than he was black.
5: Okay. This is the second Wheatley production by Hammer. They also did a movie called The Lost Continent, which is completely different. But the original novel of The Lost Continent, there are two islands, one of white people, and that's where all the good stuff happens, and one of black people, and that's where all the bad things happen. So I guess knowing that going into the movie, it kind of hit me a little bit stronger, like just kind of being overly aware of it. I don't think Hammer's doing anything racist here at all. I'm I'm not suggesting that. I just didn't know if that, anything you guys picked up on i'm glad that you didn't and really i don't think i would have either if i didn't know that about wheatley in the era and that sort of thing so but he did have creepy eyes whether he's white or black yes (laughs) (laughs) and he mesmerized poor wreck
1: but then the crucifix uh, caused him to go away at that point the duke is realizing that uh, mokata is a lot more powerful than maybe he first thought and then they start figuring out what day it is, and that uh, the next day is April 30th, the eve of May Day, which I guess in the occultist calendar is the worst day in the world, or the best day for them. I don't. I didn't quite understand <laughs> what the significance of that day was, but it was bad.
5: You're not meant to understand these things. That's what Christopher Lee is here for. He'll tell you.
1: It's important, you fool. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> but then Chris Lee realizes that Simon is going to be, you know, fully indoctrined into the the occultist that night. Rex then is starting to worry about Tanith because when he met Tanith the night before, he's kind of interested in her. He's worried that she needs to be rescued as well. At first they don't think that she needs to be rescued because, you know, people that are in this cult they all assume names from famous cultists in the past and tanith is a famous name so at first uh, the duke thinks that she's already too far gone but decides to help rex anyway by like checking every single hotel in london which i guess in the 1920s isn't as probably a a difficult task as it is today by calling (laughs) all of them i think he says there's like 28 of them or something
5: well when they first met rex tells tanith we've met before so they, they have had the occasion to kind of pass each other before somewhere.
1: The Duke finally locates what hotel is in, tells Simon to go into town, go into London to get her and bring her out to the Eaton's place and meet him there because he's going to the library to do some research. Is this where we're about
5: to see some awesome blue screen, green screen effects?
1: Yeah. Well, this is probably one of the last things that I ever thought I would say on this podcast. But a Dukes of Hazzard car chase opens up.
5: <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, that does happen.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Simon gets Tanith and is taking her out into the country to the Eaton's house. Lokata shows up in the mirror of the, the rearview mirror of the car and takes control of Tanith. I'm trying to remember how Rex got out of the car. Well, they actually
5: they got to the. Eatons, oh, that's right. Yeah, and Rex gets out of the car, leaving her behind.
4: That was one of my favorite moments of that movie. Rex pull, Harry he pulls up to the Eaton's house. You see him pull the parking brake on the outside of the car. It was pretty you – know, you know, they set it up, so it was pretty obvious that he pulled it. He gets out, and he runs up, and he's like, oh, the Eatons. Uncle Rex is here giving the kid a hug and saying hi. <laughs> Never thinks that he left this girl that's already tried to jump out of the car once alone in the car. So while he's standing there being all Uncle Rex and happy to meet the Eatons, she takes off. It's like well, of course she would take off you idiot what are you thinking
5: <laughs> Rex really was kind of a bumbling kind of mm-hmm. oh
4: all right kind of <laughs> he's kind of like I he strikes me especially with the, if you look at the picture the type of story this is overall he kind of strikes me as a combo of shaggy Scooby.
5: Scooby-Doo-Doo, where are you
3: we got some
1: yeah Yeah, Yeah. I can see that. (laughs) Uh
4: Oh? Especially early on when they're talking about the black magic. It's like, oh?
1: Black magic? What are you talking about?
5: (laughs) (laughs) You do that really well, Casey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Frighteningly well. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So, yeah, he's he's all happy to see the Eatons. Tanith takes off in in his car. He immediately yells at Richard, I need your car. It's... Simon's life's in danger. So he hops in Eaton's car and takes off after her, and this is where the car chase starts. We got Mokata is still in control of Tanith. At one time, he makes Rex's windshield uh, opaque so he can't see through it, and then he punches the windshield so he can see through it again. I thought that was kind of cool, actually. A little silly, but I kind of thought it was cool. Yeah, and then when they drove through the little creek that was some of the worst special effects I've ever seen. It was obviously they were sitting in a car and somebody was throwing a bucket of water at them.
5: <laughs> okay. I was going to ask you, I know I said, we'd talk about it. I know I brought it up earlier in terms of the digital enhancements that were done to the movie. So that looks pretty rough to you too, on your version of the movie. I mean, they didn't seem to have gone in and done anything or at least noticeably to the version that I saw of the movie where they went in and maybe cleaned up some mat lines or changed how pasted onto a, blue screen optical effect it all looked to me it all looked pretty
1: oh it was very cheesy budget. it was okay, it I, was very cheesy right. the whole the whole car chase was cheesy
5: it's just unfortunate because up until this point despite some of the absurd thing <laughs> the absurd things that lee is saying and how rex is like i can't even think of rex now without thinking of scooby and shaggy but you know as, <laughs> <Rural>. yeah <laughs> as absurd as some of these things are i'm still all in I'm all in for the movie. But then, you know, some of the effects work. It's just like, come on. I mean, this is an early Hammer where things might look a little rough. This is 1968. Hammer's had a lot of success, has made a lot of money. You could have afforded a little bit better.
4: Yeah. Really, for me, once we get to this point where they're getting Tanith and the other guy out of the – Out of the grasp of the occult and whatnot, and we get to the Eatons and we're starting to put this together. As a whole, the movie, the quality of the movie kind of dips here in the middle in the second act for me. It doesn't fall apart or anything like that, but it definitely slows down. We get a little bit removed from the interesting stuff with the occult and whatnot and the tension and then the creepiness of all that. And it's their whole – they're trying to build their case and – coming up with their plan and it just kind of slows down quite a bit in the middle altogether. And then it's framed by, you know, kind of the subpar special effects and whatnot to, especially when you get some, even though they're still cheesy, you get some cooler effects in the third act. You got some cooler stuff going on in the first act, you know, with the room, with the mist and the guy that shows up with the creepy eyes and all that good stuff. So I don't know. There was just something going on here in the middle of this where it slowed down some.
1: Well, I would say that the reason that it slows down. And the other times where the film slows down is whenever Christopher Lee isn't involved in the story. Yeah. When he's out at the library, his study or doing whatever it is. The Duke does. When the film has to focus on Rex and Tanith and, and what they're doing, I think the film suffers. Well, the car chase ends when, um, Mokata creates a giant smoke screen in the forest, which causes Rex to crash into a tree. As he's wandering back down the road, he hey, sees. Can, can I
5: interrupt here? I wanted to ask both of you actually because Makata's telling Tanith he will never catch you. He will never, or I won't let him catch you or whatever. Did you maybe get the impression at one point he was going to run her off the road and kill
1: her? I didn't hmm. get that impression because I thought he, that Mokata had to maintain the number 13 in his group. Okay.
4: Yeah. I th- yeah, because I felt like he had a master plan involving her that later on, then he scrambled to work around. So at the time, I felt that it was pretty imperative for him to keep her around because otherwise, why would he bother?
1: Okay. But then again, I don't understand if M- Mokata can change the the windshield, make it opaque. If he can create a smoke screen out of nothing, how come he just didn't cut the brakes of Rex's car? <laughs> It's not visually as interesting. Or, or, or cause the, uh, the gasoline in the, in the tank to explode. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> He's got connections. Come on. Rick wrecked <laughs> at least two or three cars, too, didn't he? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Rex uh, climbs out of the wreck and uh, starts to wander down the road where uh, he tries to uh, wave down a car, and it turns out the Person in the car is another uh, woman that was at the original party at the beginning of the film, who's got
5: crazy eyes. The cross-eyed and, and, <laughs> man.
4: <laughs> 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 yeah, she's got crazy. She's got the crazy eyes going. It was wonderful at the beginning when they, they when we were first introduced to her at the party. They turned around, and they, the countess such and such, and she turns, and looked at the screen with a big old dog turned stogie hanging out of her hand. <laughs> <laughs> those crazy eyes staring at you. It's like, oh boy.
1: <laughs> oh, well, man. Was she related, the actress, was she related to Marty Feldman because she has the same kind of eyes that he has? Man, it was...
4: It kind of made, <laughs> this, this sounds like I'm being mean, but it m- makes me wonder if that's where uh, they got the imp- um, inspiration for Hatchet Face and Cry Baby. <laughs> that's probably going too far.
5: <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, but when we do cut to her driving, I'm like, should she be driving? (laughs) Stay on the center road of the three. (laughs) And then, of course, she almost runs over Rex, you know?
1: But then again, you know, she takes off and Rex, in some superhuman strength, is able to follow her on foot. (laughs) Well, we are talking about cars from the 30s. I mean, these all have...
4: Yeah, they're driving like 25 at tops.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. See, well, Casey, I know you run, and, and I do a lot of walking, but we nowhere near get 25 miles an hour.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so it's one of those ones where she's just out of reach ahead of him and stays there, you know? So he's just, you know, constant frustration as he's running down the dirt road in his suit. But I'm he's going to get you.
1: <laughs> but he's able to follow her all the way to Mokata's. Um, Summer home in the woods, I guess.
5: <laughs> well, he had to because it's not like Christopher Lee's available. He's online. He's at home somewhere online looking up black cocks and white hen <laughs> ceremonies. <or something. laughs> he's on occult.com.
4: <laughs>
1: but then, of course, the <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> The dummies guide to the occult.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> black magic for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
4: and And that's where this episode's going, folks. (laughs) So
1: when Rex
5: gets to that house, he's awfully darn sneaky, hiding behind cars that he doesn't really ever manage to duck completely behind.
1: Yeah. The camera also then stays really long on a uh, architectural element of the gate, which comes into play later in the film. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, like over the head foreshadowing. (laughs) Uh, Pay attention to this. (laughs) <laughs> he sneaks into the grounds. There's probably a dozen cars parked out front. He very masterly sneaks around the cars and sneaks into the boot or the trunk of one of the cars. Broad daylight. I don't believe anybody never saw him, but he does see Simon. He does see Tanith. As, uh, he's hiding in the back of the car as the, the cars form a convoy that drives out into the woods. Once the cars stop and ev- all the... Occultists get out, now all dressed in their ceremonial garb. Rex gets out and peeks out and sees what's going on and sees that it it turns out that Tanith and uh, Simon are going to be inducted as full-time cult members. And they'll have to swear their allegiance to the devil and everything that night. He sneaks away to call up Christopher Lee. The movie's failing. We need you back in here. (laughs) <laughs> Christopher Lee how, I don't know how many cars Christopher Lee has. He must have, you know, a whole fleet because he gets into a different car, drives out there into the phone booth in the middle of the forest that <laughs> Rex was using.
4: That was a good bit of flavor they added early on when they uh when they first got their buddy out of the out of the house and took him back to Count De Richelieu's and then they were made in the plans between Christopher Lee and Rex and how they're gonna do this, and Rex was gonna go off and do this stuff, and then Rex comes back, oh uh can I borrow a car? And he's like, "Yeah, sure, just take whatever whichever one you want." <laughs> Which he obviously made reference to. He had a bunch of cars then too.
1: Yeah, that's right. true. <laughs> so they uh they rush in, they they well, first they do a little bit of reconnaissance and they're watching what's going on. And there's just kind of a, a this big pagan ceremony going on. Most of the the people are dancing and rubbing all over each other and except for Simon and Tanith, who are standing there at the front, perfectly still. I guess they're not supposed to move, not supposed to take into the celebration. You know, this is after they've sacrificed a goat, which uh, then uh, Mokata lifts up over his head and uh, summons the goat of Mendez, the devil himself, as uh, the Duke uh, mentions when he shows up in the back. Mokata tells Simon that uh, to turn to face your master and. At this point, they decide that they're going to, to run in. Uh, they get in the car. Uh, Rex gets on the floorboard, I mean, on the side rail of the car. The Duke gives him a pitcher, what looks like a pitcher of water, which I'm guessing is holy water. They never really explain what that is. And he sa- he tells him, when you get there, throw it right at the devil. So they, they rush in. He throws the the water at the devil. The devil disappears. They end up uh, grabbing Simon They grab Tanith and make their way out of the the cultist party and head back to the Eatons. So how much farther do we want to go in the story?
5: Well, I I do want to talk a little bit about what happens in the circle uh, at the Eatons. But this scene here with the goat showing up and, you know, this big ceremony in which we're going to re-baptize, you know, Simon and Tanith in to the black magic or whatever the hell is happening here at this point. Um, <laughs> I feel like there was almost too much going on and it just felt like a, a desperation play on the part of the Duke and Rex and that they shouldn't have gotten away from that many people and to get to the next part of the story. I understand why. you know, We have to have a story here. We've got things have to move on. It just felt like well we'll use lights to distract them and it just felt
1: well they did have I don't a, know. they did have a car and they drive the car through the group of people who then of course are going to part cuz they don't want to be hit by the car and there's the confusion of them you know with the, the headlights and rushing in the cultists obviously didn't expect them to be there the the devil has been dispatched away so that's probably a little confusing for them of what's going on and they grab Tanneth and Simon and leave very quickly, but there was probably thirty or forty people there. I would think that many people could stop a car. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because they weren't going. I mean, you know, four or five mile an hour. It wasn't like they were going fifty. It just felt restrained
5: unnecessarily the way they all kind of held back.
1: But as you said, for the story mode, you needed them to escape because you needed to get to the ne- to the next scene, right? So where they, they get back to the Eatons. It's early in the morning at this point. They they send Simon to bed, and they ask Richard Eaton to watch over him. They put Tanith in another bedroom, and Rex volunteers to watch her. The Duke is saying, basically, you guys, they can't be alone even for a moment. They have to be watched at the whole time, but I can't do it. I got to go back to the library. Because <laughs> <laughs> then... You know, he makes his exit from the film again to go off and do some more research. Of course he does.
4: Cut to him at the library surfing Facebook.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see his library card. I want to see Christopher Lee's library card. <laughs> <laughs> so as that's going on, so the only the only person that's not watching somebody else right now is Marie, the woman that looks like Vicki Lawrence. And Mokata shows up because... Um, now he's he's wanting to find Simon and Tanith, and he shows up under the ruse of, oh, uh, the Count left one of his cars you know on my property, and I'm just returning it. Okay, Mokata, he's pretty
4: loose and uh, fancy-free with his cars. Yes.
1: <laughs> now, Makata and Marie sit down and talk, and then Makata hypnotizes her just by creepy eye staring. I mean, there's no mirrors or anything like that. He was just able to take over her will.
3: Hear me out. Dear lady. I do not propose to discuss with you the rights and wrongs of practicing the magic art. I will confine myself to saying that I am a practitioner of some experience. Monsieur de Richelieu has no doubt led you to believe that I am thoroughly evil. Such is not the case. In magic, there is neither good nor evil. It is merely a science. The science of causing change to occur by means of one's will. The sinister reputation attaching to it is entirely groundless. And is based on superstition rather than objective observation. The power of the will is something people do not understand. Attributing to it mysterious qualities which it does not possess.
1: He found out that both Simon and Tanith were upstairs sleeping. So while he's sitting there talking and controlling Marie, he takes control of Simon and Tanith and basically tells each one of them to kill the person that's watching over so he's now controlling these three people and if it wasn't for peggy the little girl showing up and knocking on the door and busting her way in we would have had uh, the the two people watching upstairs be killed and probably the movie would have been over because makata would have taken the the two kids and and indoctrinated them in but uh as soon as peggy shows in shows up spell's broken and orders makata to leave And I love when he left, he said, I'm leaving.
3: I shall not be back, but something will. Tonight, something will come for Simon
5: and the girl.
1: That's someone, something. Yeah. You said you wanted to talk about the circle.
5: And and mostly because that's where a lot of the enhancements were done. Okay. A lot of the special effects enhancements, yeah.
1: To, so to set it up, um, the Duke returns. At this point, Rex and Tanith have left because Tanith is worried that she's going to hurt everybody once uh, Macadeth takes control of her. They go off and Rex calls back to the Eatons and says, he's taken her and he'll be able to, to watch her. And the Duke says, well, I sure hope so. So he draws this giant circle with a... A bunch of writing in it in the in the drawing room where they've removed all the furniture he, he puts out some water he put out candles and him simon and the Eatons get into the circle and he tell uh, the duke tells everybody that you cannot leave this circle no matter what happens our souls will be in danger if we leave this circle at, the, at this point I, I really don't want to talk a whole lot about the, the plot because we're getting close to the end of the story but you want to talk about the special effects.
5: Right. So, and I want to talk a little bit about the, the circle as well and what happens in the circle. Because I've said a couple of times I'm all in. I'm really enjoying the movie. I like Christopher Lee. I had a problem at this point in the story. One, the enhanced special effects were too modern. Now, when I'm watching the special feature on the Blu-ray, they're kind of showing compare and contrast. This is what it looked like to be in with. This is where we went in and fixed it. Like the guy coming out on the horse, they went in and they kind of changed that up a little bit, gave it a little bit more solidity. There are a lot of things that happen here, actually, that you can kind of see through the original image. The mats aren't very well done. So they went in and kind of redid some of the mats. And when the horse comes in, for example, there's like this shining light that comes in behind him as if he's opened up a door. And there's like light behind the door and he comes barreling into the room, which are am too crisp, too clean to me. Also, they kind of went in and added a few things to the giant spider,
1: and hmm. now did they cut out the looping of these special effects?
5: Not necessarily. No, <laughs> they didn't really take any scenes out. They just kind of added to
1: things. Well, the the horse, especially the horse, rears up a couple times, and insta- oh yeah,
5: and it kind of back and forth, back and back forth. and forth, back and forth. Oh yes. god, yeah, that was not good. <laughs> I don't think they were necessarily necessary. And I understand, you know, you want to make the movie look as good as possible. And the Blu-ray specifically, Studio Canal is kind of notorious for going in and recoloring things and that sort of thing. Sometimes to good effects, sometimes to bad. And this isn't the first time in this movie even that they went in and made some changes. I mean the very beginning when Rex and the Duke show up at Simon's house – Before they knock on the door, they look up into the sky and they see there's some weird sky lighting things happening around the house. It's dark, but it shouldn't be and that sort of thing. In the original DVD release, you can tell it's pretty poorly done in terms of the mat. You know, when they shot the scene, for example, they shot it during the day so they could use the blue sky as a blue screen that they're going to put some cloud effects on. And on this DVD, or excuse me, on this Blu-ray release, they really cleaned it up, and it almost looks too CG for my taste. And they did that with some special effects here in the circle. On top of that, if you look at the movie itself, I'm enjoying the movie. And then they get to the circle scene, and I got bored. I just got bored. I was ready to move on. I'm like... Okay, there's a giant spider. Okay, there's a do-it-on-horseback. Okay, don't look at his eyes. Oh, there's something with the girl. It's like they just threw everything at him at once. It's like, I get it. I've seen Supernatural. I know. Don't leave the circle. Move on. <laughs> you know? I just got bored, and I felt like they just threw everything they possibly could at the two Eatons and our two other leads. And I just was ready to get to the next part of the story. Or almost let the story end here.
4: Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a problem. I didn't get bored in this scene itself. I was mildly amused by the whole giant spider thing and whatnot, especially at times it was hard to tell if they thought wanted it to be giant or not giant, etc. I didn't have a problem with that, but then I felt like the movie took a sharp decline from here on out as far as getting wrapped up in it and what, everything. I thought it kind of really tapered off from this point on.
1: I agree. now I didn't get bored in the, the circle scene. But when the circle scene ended, that's where the film should have ended.
5: Yeah. yeah. This was the climax. This should have been it. And when it didn't end, and they're like, well, we've got to deal with it. Like, really? Well, yeah. they,
1: I, I I, was actually kind of satisfied with the ending because it was morning. There was some characters who didn't make it. There was some that did. It, It should have been over then exactly now there is a
5: whole bunch of other stuff that happens that like Scott said we probably don't want to ruin but yeah not everybody makes it to the end of the movie
1: or do they
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
5: I enjoyed the movie overall I had some issues uh, I think I've made my issues pretty clear regarding the false ending in the circle scene But I also really struggled with the music. Now, I love James Bernard, don't get me wrong, and I think he's a hammer mainstay. But I felt like he was way too into his Dracula motif for this movie. The music felt so much like a Dracula film to me that it just didn't fit. And I, I wanted something
4: different. I never really had a problem with the music, but then again, I'm not as into the film scores as as you are, which I know you're a huge fan, but to me, there was nothing in it that made it stand out to be bad. And then there was times in this movie, I thought it kind of added a little bit to the creepy atmosphere, so I was okay with it for the most part. You know, the subtle stuff, it
5: does get creepy, but when the big bombastic stuff starts happening and the big chase scenes or whatever, I'm like, "That's when Van Helsing is chasing Dracula." That didn't. It just took <laughs> me out, you know. I kind
1: of agree with Casey.
5: Well, you're both wrong. <laughs> I, you the fool.
1: Mu- <laughs> <laughs> the music really didn't ma- leave that much impression on me either way.
4: Okay. Now, Derek. This is also the time where Scott and I have been talking, and we wanted to set you down and have a talk with you know, you're being way too into film scores. It's time to have an intervention.
5: Your obsession with film music has affected us in the following ways. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but we love you. Just remember that.
5: It just didn't. And it just kind of took me out of it a little bit. And on top of that, and maybe this kind of worked for the movie. I like Terrence Fisher as a director quite a bit. I love that he approaches his movies as if they're you know fairy tales for adults. And this certainly is a fairy tale for an adult. And sometimes I feel like the black and white, the good versus evil lines in this movie are just a little too on the nose. Christopher Lee is always right. Makata is always wrong. And sometimes that works for me and sometimes it didn't. I wanted to see a little bit more flaw in Lee, I guess. Make him a flawed hero. But
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the right term to use, but Christopher Lee was kind of the a bit of the deus ex machina for this story. Mm. There was never any sense that he was going to have a challenge in this. That was always he, he is the solution to everything.
1: Yeah, but a de facto the only, solution. The only thing that could have gone bad for him is if his library card expired. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And if he didn't have incompetent Rex with
5: him, he probably would have ended the movie a good half hour beforehand. <laughs> you know? And, and maybe that's why he's surrounded by people like Rex and the Eaton, so that he can't have the flaws externally versus internally. You kind know, of like with Captain Kronos.
4: Yeah. You know it- <laughs> <laughs> At the same time though the movie for me, the story wise story wise I thought this was a really good movie. uh there were some parts with bad effects and whatnot, but I didn't think they overall really detracted anything. I enjoy this a lot. I had a good little bit of creep and whatnot, but then it left me with a lot of questions too. I would almost been more Ooh. interested in seeing them going back and exploring the Count de Richelieu's past. I mean, you think from the sounds of it, it would be the perfect setup for more flicks? Because he's obviously seen some stuff in his time from, you know, listening to him talk about it.
1: Yeah, he could definitely be a member of our uh, Hammer Adventures team.
4: Yeah. From <laughs> Sanzo. Of course go. we say that. It could his past could be, you know, twenty years of sitting in the library reading dusty old books and thinking <laughs> he's somebody special too. <laughs> well, I read the Necronomicon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't
5: look at his eyes, you fool. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Everybody knows you don't look in the eyes of a satanic priest. Come on.
5: <laughs> you know, this movie didn't do too well at the box office. And that's kind of the reason why there weren't very many. I mean, the next Hammer adaptation of a Wheatley film would come later in the 70s with To the Devil and the Daughter, which is all sorts of interesting for probably the wrong reasons, which I'm sure at some point we'll talk about here on the show. But, you know, Wheatley and Hammer just wasn't a good fit. The Lost Continent, which... I didn't know anything about either until I watched this Blu-ray and they talked a little bit about it. Sounds like a fascinating acid trip of a movie. I gotta see it. And I probably will watch it this afternoon just for fun. But for whatever reason just didn't quite work out. And the marketplace is different. I mean, Hammer is still scrambling, still trying to find a place. You know, Like I said at the very beginning, they're saying that they're trying to find this new series, something new to latch onto. And the occult and Satanism are starting to become pop-culturally relevant. You've got bands that are really exploring the occult and, and the psychedelic stuff going on. And it's okay to talk about Satanism in movies now, but for whatever reason, this just didn't hit. And maybe it's because it was kind of dated. It is a little old you know it creaks a little bit because it is set in the 30s versus modern day now if it was set in the 60s i think this movie would have been much worse but i don't know there's just something a little out of time out of place about the movie
4: mm, i can get a sense of that it, it did seem a little bit weird as far as time setting goes
5: Although it did have that cool intercom system for the guys in the back of the car to talk to the guy in the front of the car. Yeah. That big tube looking thing that Christopher Lee pulls out and talks to the driver. Take me to Simon Aaron's house, <laughs> you fool.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. You're just doing your job.
5: <laughs> but I do like the movie. I, I, I have some issues. I just, it's not my top five. It's not my top ten.
1: I enjoyed the film. I'm glad I watched it. Um, I'm probably not going to be in a big hurry to see it again. I loved Christopher Lee's performance in the film. I thought he was great. I think the film suffered when he wasn't part of the story, when it had to focus on the other characters. And that's what kind of brought the film down for me. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much in agreement. I like this. Um, I watched it twice to get ready for this show. I don't know that I necessarily need to watch it again anytime soon. But I enjoyed it. I thought the cast overall was pretty strong. The Eatons were the weak point. Uh, As much as we've made fun of the bumbling Rex, he developed to be a pretty good character – a really strong character or a really good character I should say by the end of the flick. So I did like him. I did think it suffered when Christopher Lee was gone though and Christopher Lee was definitely on his A-game here. So, Mm
5: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in reading or at least learning a little bit more about some of the other novels. This was the second novel in this series, or a series of, I think, was it 12 or so? And they all feature the Duke, Rex, and uh, Simon, and Mr. Eaton, uh, Richard. They're sometimes referred to as Those Four Musketeers by Dennis Wheatley himself, and they go off and have all these mostly occult thriller-type adventures. There's a couple of the novels that are not occult-like at all, but they still have these adventures together. So I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about that, but... I don't know if I'm going to go back and re-watch this movie anytime soon, even though Lee is pretty awesome in this. I like Lee as a hero fighting supernatural or monsters. I liked that. A lot. He does it really well in Horror Express. He also produced a movie called uh, Some Such Thing.
1: <laughs> I remember some such thing. It a was classic. So good. It's one of my favorite films of all time.
5: <laughs> he produced a movie called Nothing But the Night with his own production company, Charlemagne Productions. It was the only movie that production company put together because it didn't do very well. But it's him and Peter Cushing, and it's a modern day at the time, you know, early 70s police thing in which there's some supernatural stuff going on. So I like seeing Chris really fight the supernatural as much as I like seeing him embody the supernatural.
4: That's like I said, they could, if they would have done more flicks with the Count de Richelieu, like prequel flicks of him actually, I think watching him go through and uh, foil cults across England in that time era, I think would have been pretty fascinating. They could have done a lot with that.
5: So it's in the 30s, so World War II hasn't quite happened. But, huh. I'm just trying to put it in a place in terms of historical relevance. They could have tied
4: it into the prequel of Hellboy. Sure.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I was trying real hard to make some sort of Nazi occultism kind of thing, but the Nazis weren't around yet. But I'd love to see the Duke fight Nazi occultists.
4: it would have been real easy for them to tie into The Duke eventually became uh, the doctor that, uh, you know, with a little tinkering, obviously, at the story, we had the doctor that discovered Hellboy. After the Nazis' uh, ritual, sure. Well, he could he could, also- have, been the- <laughs> he could <laughs> have been the British Army's, uh, you know, occult expert.
1: Well, he could have also fought right alongside with Indiana Jones because he could tell him, "Don't look in the Ark, don't look in the eyes." <laughs> so the movie's on Blu-ray. <laughs>
5: Uh, It's available in the UK on Blu-ray. It's a decent package, and I actually found the documentaries about the movie really fascinating, so I'd recommend that. There's a Christopher Lee audio commentary that I have not listened to yet. I'm kind of afraid to listen to that voice for that long. I mean, I'll get hypnotized or something.
4: Just don't look in the mirror.
5: And then it's also, at least at one point, has been released on DVD as well. It's not
4: too hard to get your hands on. It's worth a viewing. Yeah. Yeah. Good times.
5: Good times.
4: I think on that, it's time to go to feedback.
5: (laughs) We have some feedback. As Casey told us in last month's episode, we got a number of messages from the listeners after we recorded the October show. So we got two voicemails, one from Thor from Thor's Hour of Thunder, and he actually asked us a question.
0: Hello, this is Thor from the Thor's Hour of Thunder podcast. I was just calling to one, let you guys know this is such a great show. I always enjoy listening to it. I uh, love all of the sound effects and uh, movie soundtracks that you guys put in the background. It's a really high production value podcast. You put a lot more time and energy into it than... uh, say we do with ours um but uh, i was just uh calling to ask, Um, I'd actually ask the same question on bloody good horror, so Casey, sorry for the repeat, uh, but I asked it like a million years ago, so um, (laughs) uh, uh, for Halloween, our podcast is going to do a uh, 90s horror special, where unfortunately there was no Hammer Horror movies, as far as I know, but then a 70s horror special, which was sort of what I would look at the golden age for Hammer Horror, in that it was the era with the most nudity, Um, so I just wanted to get your guys, thought I know it's a big question, but what are some of your favorite uh, you know, hammer horrors specifically from the 70s, and then what are some of your favorite 70s horrors that were not produced by the good folks at Hammer? Uh, and I know that's a very big question, but just wanted to uh, get your guys' thoughts on it. That's all. Thanks again for putting out such a great podcast. This is Thor. Have a good day.
4: So, yeah, Thor asked us for our favorite 70s hammer flicks and our favorite uh, 70s horror flicks in general, but uh, it's gotten. And- Derek and I, after we were talking about this in email, decided we had to put a cap on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Going into this of about five each because we were getting, it was get the lists were getting very long.
5: <laughs> yeah. Easy to do. I mean, there's the 70s oh, yeah. are, are, there are some really bad horror movies from the 70s, but there are some really good ones as well. So, uh, but you want to focus on our hammer first?
1: Sure. Well, that one will be the easiest for me because I've only seen three hammer films from the 70s. I know we have several more on our upcoming calendar, but as of right now, there's only three that I've seen, and that would be Twins of Evil, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, and Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. And only two of them would be on my list of favorite 70s Hammer films.
5: Oh, come on now. You need to be nicer to... uh...
1: I didn't like Captain Kronos. It did not change my life. Scott... Twins of Evil's actually on my top 5. So
5: Yeah. Nobody's perfect Casey, it's okay. We love him anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what Pushing do you guys have Scott. So what do you guys have for your uh, 70s Hammer films?
4: I love Captain Kronos. Uh, mine is very vampire heavy though too because after watching that doing our episode on our uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, I enjoyed that a lot. And then Twins of Evil, I thought was great cuz I thought it was a great Peter Cushing role vampire lovers because I'm the only one that liked it here in the first place in Ingrid Pitt. <laughs> and uh, also Countess Dracula because of my ongoing love of Ingrid Pitt. So, yeah.
5: And then, Three of my top five are 70s movies, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, Captain Kronos, and Fear in the Night, which is kind of a psychological horror kind of movie. But if I were to add a couple others, I'd probably add Satanic Rites of Dracula just because I love that movie more than anybody really should. And I love Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. I love a good mummy movie, and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb is really
1: good. I'm a big fan of that one. Would you
4: say that you miss your mummy?
5: I might have some mummy issues.
1: All I know is I've got some uh, potential good films to look forward to. You, you did hear him say potential, right, Casey? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh.
4: But he didn't like Captain Cronus, so, That's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've lost faith.
5: That's <laughs> For Hammer Horror. I already mentioned one earlier when I mentioned Horror Express. That would be one of my favorite ha- non Hammer Horror movies from the 70s. Just because Cushing and Lee and even Telly Savalas is awesome in that movie.
1: And that film is on my list too. I love Horror Express. Oh, it's so good. The Blu ray that came out a while back is awesome. I need to get my hands on that one. I do not have it. It's good. But I love good. Horror Express.
5: Let's see. And, and I would also. People know my zombie background, so I'm going to put Dawn of the
1: Dead on here. That's on my list as well.
5: <laughs> and, and I would even put, I'm going to add another 70s zombie movie, uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie.
4: I debated also, that one.
5: Also known as The Living Dead of the Manchester Morgue. Uh, maybe Don't Look in the Window or something, I don't know. But it's got some other... It's, it's just a good zombie film. and It's kind of out-of-the-ordinary zombie stuff. I really like that one. I'd put the Blind Dead films on my list. Which, I like three of the four Though those. I'm not a big fan of the third one of Ghost Galleon. Yeah. But I I do like the other ones. And the last one in the series is with the most love crafting of the and then Jaws.
1: Jaws. Jaws is on I think all of our list. Yes. My initial
4: list for <laughs> my initial list for this was Jaws, 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 Jaws and Jaws. But um <laughs> That didn't sound quite as interesting. My list, guys, well, out of all the 70s, my absolute favorite is probably Halloween because, you know, that's the master and the classic right Uh, there. Yeah. yeah, Love that one. Uh, Phantasm. I love the Phantasm flicks as a whole. Oh, man.
1: I had Phantasm on my list until we had to pare it down. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I love Phantasm, and it gets so weird as they go on in the sequels, and it's great.
5: I love that entire series, man.
4: Yeah, they get in the whole post-apocalyptic thing and whatnot. Uh, Jaws, I already mentioned. Uh, I loved Rocky Horror Picture Show from back in the day, but that's more you fall in love with the experience and everything. It was uh, something my wife and I bonded over a lot back in the day in college and whatnot, so that was exciting. And then the other one is probably a bit of a stretch, but by God, I say it counts because it's horror-themed and it does have Frankenstein in it, but I absolutely love Young Frankenstein.
1: So. again that was on my list until I pared it down. I love that yeah. film as well. I think it's it a horror
4: comedy so it
5: counts it counts no no doubt
4: yeah that's what a you know that's just like an all-time favorite
5: uh, actually Scott Tracy and I were just talking about young Frankenstein for a recording for Monster Kid radio so I mean I, it totally counts
1: well my list uh, a couple of them we've already covered. I love 72's Horror Express. Uh, another film that hasn't been mentioned yet that I really like is the Crazies. Ooh. Nice. I love the original. I didn't like the remake as much. That's one of my favorite non-zombie Romero films As I love the crazies. Ah,
5: but I would
1: argue that I perhaps don't,
5: it is a zombie I know, movie. I know there is
1: an argument <laughs> out there. But If
5: if you consider 28 Days Later a zombie movie, I say the crazies beat that movie to the punch by several. But I'm not a zombie podcaster anymore. So.
1: Yes.
4: I'm one of the weirdos that actually like the uh, remake of the crazies better than the original.
1: Well, I think
5: huh. you like Timothy Olyphant quite a bit though,
1: right? Yeah. So, and then I have Jaws, and then I have Dawn of the Dead, and then uh, Casey, you're not alone in the um, the spoofy type films because my other one is 1978's Attack of the Killer Tomatoes.
2: Of the killer tomatoes.
5: Attack of the killer tomatoes.
4: <laughs> They'll beat you fast, you you That's awesome. <laughs> Attack killer tomatoes.
5: <laughs> oh my god. Oh wow. <laughs> oh. God. I haven't seen that movie in so long. Yeah. I love We've the not- master disguise in that though. It's so good.
4: <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I have been exposed with our daughter, a thirteen year old daughter, to Quite a lot of the class. uh, We have not shown her uh, attack the killer tomatoes yet, but I did see the look of bewilderment when we described it to her, and it was wonderful. Oh,
5: nice! Well, I'm eager to hear how that goes because yes,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and then then of course you know you got its follow up with George Clooney and one of the major stars in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Now is that the one that also had Skippy from
5: Family Ties, or is that another one? That
1: is, uh, I think Killer Tomatoes Eat France, the fourth one. Okay, (laughs) I think it is. We need to start a Killer Tomato cast. That's what I'm... <laughs> I I actually have um, the collector's box set of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. that has the DVD and the soundtrack. Wow. <laughs>
4: oh, nice. That's impressive. That's some impressive uh, nerding there.
1: <laughs> so I don't know if that's what Thor
5: was going for, but.
1: Uh... <laughs> Hello, Casey, Derek and Scott. I just want to say I'm a new listener and uh, I'm thrilled that I have found you. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be checking out the Hammer Films production at the Joy Theater in Tigard, Oregon, featuring uh, Christopher Lee and uh, Peter Cushing, and I'm uh, pretty excited about it, and uh, I just want to say that uh, even though I'm a new listener, I'm a
2: few uh, episodes behind, and, um, but uh, the the last couple that I've listened to have been
1: uh, pretty remarkable, very entertaining, and so I, I appreciate the... Uh, um, all of the 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 good review and the good discussion about all the things that you notice in the films, and uh, and uh, for a cursory fan, you've definitely made me want to dig deeper
2: into the genre, and I have found a new appreciation for horror films. Thank you for what you do. Keep up the good work.
5: Well, Jeremiah, it was awesome to meet you at the Joy Theater uh, when we went to go see *Satanic Rites of Dracula*. That was awesome to see on the big screen. It was so much fun.
1: Jeremiah, so just just like soon. you, uh, I'm being part of this podcast has uh, opened my whole world up to a whole bunch of new films that I've never seen, and there's uh, several on our upcoming schedule that I'm looking forward to seeing. So I'm, i I feel at times I'm more of a, a listener type to this show as well because I'm I'm gaining all insight into all these films from uh, both uh, Casey and Derek. You hear that, Casey? We're giving him insight. Now he's not paying attention to it since he
5: did not like Captain Kronos. But
4: <laughs> I, all I hear is people blaming us for their spending problems. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
4: uh huh. <laughs> I got my own problems, man. Come on.
5: <laughs> I know, right? Oh, that's cool, man. I I would love to see more Hammer theatrically. It'd be so cool to see more of it on the big screen. I, I just. Anytime anybody gets a chance to do that, I, I, and I hear about it, and it's not happening where I can do it. I just, man, I get so jealous.
4: Well, while seeing stuff like Hammer's and, and on the big screen would be would indeed be great, I would love to see more Hammer show up on the streaming services that are out there.
5: Ah, good point. Is it not a lot of it available?
4: No, there's some, but like on Netflix and whatnot, but you, you don't get the deep dives into the catalog and whatnot. And I don't know about Amazon because I don't have, use their service, but I know Netflix streaming, it's pretty small. So it would be nice to be able to see a streaming place to find all that stuff. Even if Hammer put out their own where you could stream stuff, that would be pretty cool.
1: It, I know that they tend to put stuff on YouTube every once in a while. Yeah, but some of it is locked down to country as well yeah. on their YouTube yeah. channel.
5: yeah. Well, and that—that's been the issue with Hammer from the beginning. When it comes to home releases, anyway, is who's got what rights? You know, they work with so many different studios. It's not like a Universal where they had control of their own product. You know,
4: I'm the a different type of film nerd from Derek and Scott, where I've kind of gotten away from collecting the media itself. So I'm kind of a big adopter of the streaming services and whatnot. So I just love to see more availability there. Yeah. Not knocking that. Not knocking the collecting the media. It's just
5: no, and I, something I I've got.
4: It's you know it's the part of the fandom that I've gotten away from over the years.
5: The the physical media I will still really go after if there's extra stuff on it, and I think we've talked about that here on the show before. You're not really into a lot of the special features and commentaries and all that yeah.
4: stuff. Yeah, I Whereas, just like to watch the movies and watch as many as I can. That's where I get, get yeah. into. So, like my re, my re, a recent investment I made, which was only thirty five bucks, so it's minimal <laughs> investment, but I got a cr- Google Chromecast.
5: Oh yeah, how's that?
4: Which I, it's a lot like the Roku, except for you're streaming stuff for your phone and whatnot. But to be able to stream Netflix and some other services, and I absolutely love it. I use a lot. You get great high def signal out of it streaming from Netflix and whatnot. And I've I've found that I've watched a lot more stuff on Netflix that I hadn't been watching lately because of the convenience. So
5: I mean, I have a Roku and I use it quite a bit. You know, I, I like streaming, but I want the special features and I want that extra stuff. You know, so. yeah.
1: Is streaming for me, I I do that for television shows more than I do movies. Uh, I watch a lot of uh, television shows off of Netflix uh, through my Xbox. But I'm with Derek. I like all the extra stuff, the director's commentaries, the behind the scenes making up type stuff. And I'll watch some of those over and over again. So I don't mind getting the physical media. Oh, well, thank Kate. you for
5: calling in for both of you. I mean, it was good to hear from Maya uh, here on the show. You know, like I said, I've met him in person a couple of times, and we haven't heard from Thor in a while, so thank you for calling in. We
1: also have some emails, though, right? Yes, we have uh, three emails, uh, and they're all from uh, Clayton.
5: <laughs> they're all
1: from the same guy. <laughs> they're awesome. all from the same guy. <laughs>
5: Hey, guys, I recently came across 1951 Down Place and instantly became a fan. I've been a Hammer fan for a long time, and finally having a podcast that discusses the finer points of all things Hammer is really awesome, and I hope you continue on for a long time. I just wanted to make a couple of comments, as I've been devouring the past episodes, so forgive me if they're for old shows. In the episode on I Think Vampire Lovers, the three of you felt Hammer was playing kind of fast and loose with their methods of killing vampires. And while I'm sure that's true, as I think the speed at which they were striking the hot iron left little room or care for continuity, I think you can give it a pass if you just look at Captain Kronos. they make it a point to explain how there are many different types of vampires that require many different types of dispatching. And I think you could take that as a great excuse to add some continuity back into the films. Not every vampire is a Dracula after all. However, when it comes to the count himself, yeah, they were probably just scrambling to come up with a different method than the previous film. So you can understand the randomness. Speaking of which, I think the weirdest and least effective is probably taste the blood of Dracula, but I'll wait till you cover that one to comment. I also just finished Dracula Prince of darkness. And while I haven't seen it in a while, I wonder if the criticism of the slasher-esque opening is due to viewing it through modern eyes, keeping in mind that it came out in 1968, many years before that story structure became overused. Could it be possible that it actually played in a rather fresh manner at the time? Also, I just wanted to say I can't wait to you cover more Freddie Francis entries, as when I was watching my way through the Hammer Horse, the first time I kept finding all the ones I really liked were directed by Freddie Francis, and not by Darrence Fisher, who everyone always raved about. I think it's partly due to the fact that Francis was such a great cinematographer, and also the ones he directed seem to have a lot more interesting ideas, like Dracula has risen from the grave. If you're looking for another great horror flick from Francis, I'd recommend 1961's The Innocents. He was the DP on that movie, and it is absolutely stunning with what he does with a candlelit black-and-white haunted house movie. One based on the great novel The Turn of the Screw and adapted by Truman Capote, no less. Thanks for reinvigorating my love of the hammer horror franchises. I'm letting me talk your ear off. Keep up the good work. And I can't wait till you cover scars of Dracula as I really, really hated that movie. All the best. And PS, if you ever decide to cover anything outside of hammer, I'd recommend 1960s. The flesh and the fiends it covers the real life story of body snatchers, Burke and Hare, and features Donald Pleasance, as well as the main man, Peter Cushing. I've never seen the flesh and the fiends. Um, uh, Probably should, because I really like Cushing and Donald Pleasants together. Uh, and actually, they're in a movie that I didn't mention when we were talking about the 1970s. I love Land of the Minotaur starring those two. Anyway, uh, vampire lovers were talking about different ways of dispatching vampires. Yeah, I think we talked about that with Captain Kronos as well, right?
1: Yeah. I oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say it's
4: kind of funny that you could tell where Clay is in our back catalog. <laughs>
5: Good point. Good point. And Scott really had an issue with the slasher-esque elements with dracula prince of darkness
1: and again i think i kind of agree with clay i'm seeing that film with today's background of films and that probably did uh color my my viewing of the film and it might have been different if i had saw it in uh, 1968
5: and then freddie francis i'm trying to remember i'm one of those guys who does rave a lot about terence fisher i think terence fisher was amazing Uh, as far as freddie francis so yeah he does have that cinematographer's eye and does lend that to pretty much every time he directs a movie, you can tell, you know, he's coming at it as a cinematographer. He worked on – he was a cinematographer on Glory from 1989, which I think we've mentioned when we've talked about Freddie Francis here in the past, right?
1: I love that film. Yeah.
5: Francis also directed The Creeping Flesh, which I really like, as well as uh, Amicus's Tales from the Crypt from the early 70s. Again, Peter Cushing's in that as well.
4: Amicus is an interesting uh, sidebar for the Hammer stuff because they've shared so many of the actors and whatnot. And that was uh, when we were picking out our list for Thor's question. That was, you know, there was a couple movies that I thought, oh, I love that movie. Then I had to remember that it wasn't a Hammer flick. It was actually an Amicus flick.
5: Amicus, I think, really is best known for the they called it the portmanteau pictures. Uh, They're kind of anthology pictures. From the crypt, Dr. Terra's House of Horrors is fantastic.
4: Yeah, House of the Drip Blood. Yeah,
5: a lot of good stuff in there. And I do like Dr. Terra's House of Horrors quite a bit, which is another Francis joint. So, but he mentioned in the email, thank you for letting him talk our ear off. Well, he sent two other emails, right? Yeah. Okay, what's the next one?
4: Uh, the next one is uh, Clay talking about Frankenstein created woman. So, I just listened to your coverage of Frankenstein Created Woman and just wanted to share some thoughts. Having just seen it for the first time, thanks to the FCW Dracula Prince of Darkness 7 Golden Vampires DVD I just got, I have to say I agree with a lot of your points, and though I did like it, there's one thing I couldn't get past. The thing that's great about Frankenstein is that, for the most part, those movies stay away from the supernatural and metaphysical and stick to science no matter how far-fetched it may be. But in FCW, they delve into this whole idea of the soul. Now, I mean, it doesn't make me like it any less, but I feel it's a harder concept to wrap my mind around, and I feel it's much too abstract and ethereal for someone like Frankenstein. One reason is it brings up a lot of unanswered questions, such as who is the other soul in the girl's body that Hans is fighting with, which you did bring up in your coverage. Something more concrete, like let's put just put this guy's brain in the other guy's body, is though far-fetched, easier to ride along with, I think. With that being said, I think the biggest problem with FCW is that it's not long enough. The thing I like so much about the HammerFit movies is that they really do explore some interesting ideas and concepts outside of the normal horror tropes. And I thought they had a pretty good one going in FCW, but they just didn't have time to explore it very much because they spend so much time setting it up in the beginning. The setup is great, but once they get to the meat of the story, it just turns into a creepy revenge thing with probably the worst ending I've seen in a Hammer movie. Which brings me to my other problem. My favorite Frankenstein movie is Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed because they really took the big steps, laid down in Curse of Frankenstein to make Dr. Frankenstein the real monster. If only because Cushing is just so good that he is who you come to see, not the person in the makeup. And then FCW, I feel like he's sort of just along for the ride his actions have no real consequences and the ending of the sort of amplifies that the way he just kind of walks away like oh well another day another crazed monster also what was up with his hands i like the idea but is really never brought up in any of the other movies that's a strange detail to just throw in anyways sorry for rambling hope that all made sense and i can't wait till you cover frankenstein must be destroyed
5: we talked a lot about like the soul and the the super well the metaphysical, and that was something that you liked about Frankenstein, creative woman, right?
4: I like the way that they experimented with the story because you know we've already had a couple in going in there, and everybody's f- familiar with Frankenstein at the time. So I liked the, the idea that they were playing with it and doing something weird. <laughs> And to me, it has still kind of fits. You know, you look at Dr. Frankenstein at a point where he's moved on, he's in hiding and everything else. And it's to a point where he's getting desperate and getting weird himself in his experimentation and whatnot because he's already gone through the mundane of taking one brain and putting it in this guy over here. So that was the aspects I, I enjoyed.
1: you have anything to add, Scott? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I've- I'm sorry. I'm reading the weather. I mean, they just—we uh, got a tornado watch has just popped up and a severe thunderstorm warning. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was distracted. I'm sorry.
5: <laughs> well, what's the next Frankenstein movie that we're covering? It's the next one in the series, isn't it?
1: The next, I think so. Frankenstein is Evil of Frankenstein, which will be in March of 2014. So that one's coming up. Evil.
5: That is the first time we see the flat-top Frankenstein in a Hammer film, and I think the only time, actually. So it'll be coming in. That's a Freddie Francis movie, so there you go. And then we had one more
1: email from Clay. Yes, we did. Uh, This one uh, was on our coverage of Scream of Fear from just uh, last week, or last month. One of uh, Scott's favorites. Yes, who made my top five. And uh, Clay says, hey, guys, just so happens that I watched Scream of Fear right before listening to your podcast coverage of it, and I wanted to share a couple of thoughts about it. I honestly think, overall, the biggest problem with Scream of Fear has to do with the time it was created, as Derek alluded to in the criticism. It's fairly complex for a movie of the time and therefore lends itself to being very talky, which I really started to get nervous about in the beginning. But then when the first father sighting showed up, it all settled in for me. Talkiness aside, however, I thought it was great and I feel that they had a tight grip on knowing exactly what kind of movie they were making, and thus using that to the best of their manipulative ability. The best example of this was casting Christopher Lee. They knew that his mere presence would automatically place all the suspicion on him, making him the perfect red herring right from the start. And I think this awesomeness of the genre they're playing with extends to the rest of the film as well. It feels formulaic because it's supposed to feel formulaic. So when they blindside you with the twist, it really knocks you down. Incidentally, I thought the twist was going to be that Penny's attendant had killed her and assumed her identity in order to take the money coming to her, but that's neither here nor there. The other thing that I wanted to mention about Scream of Fear is the freezer sequence. I know it's laughable to have a lock on a freezer that you can just unscrew, but I honestly think that's one of the more smart decisions of the filmmakers and makes perfect narrative sense. There's no external tension to that scene. They're not on a timetable or being rushed. There's nothing pressing them to get in and out or faster anything. So to play the scene straight, the only tension you could create would be what, whether or not he has the right key for the lock? Maybe he drops something or he picks a lock. There's nothing really tense about putting a key in a lock, picking a lock, and the actions of themselves. However, by making it a lock that's screwed to the case, it builds its own tension as a very deliberate action that delays the opening of the case in the way you can understand visually. It draws it out, allowing the viewer to fill in the space with their own expectations of what's in the box in a pretty inventive way, I think. Anyways, thanks for letting me talk off your ear again and keep up the good work. All the best, Clay. I still don't like the uh, unscrewing of the lock. I mean, why, it doesn't make sense to me of why you would put that kind of lock on the freezer in the first place. <laughs> Anybody with a Phillips head screwdriver could get into your freezer.
5: I, I guess I can kinda of see where he's coming from though, because it, it comes it becomes less about getting into it and more about something
1: getting out of it. I guess if you make that point if you're trying to keep something in it, but I never got that impression in the film that they were trying to keep right. something in it because they there was never any thought that the father was still alive.
5: And if they were trying to keep something in a box, I mean why does it have to be a freezer anyway? I
1: I don't know. Well they were the the freezer because you they were trying to st- they thought that that would be the ideal place to keep a body from decaying.
5: Right, but if it's an already a dead body, why is it trying to get out of the freezer? Right. So why bother locking it in, you know, screwing it in? I don't know.
1: Well, they wanted to keep other people from seeing what's in there, but a simple screwdriver could get you in. Which is the problem and
5: why the movie's
1: not very good. It's, it's right much better fact than fact that Captain that you Co- come across <laughs> I,
5: I'm sorry, I couldn't hear Scott over how awesome Casey was being right there. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was going to say, not to mention the fact that, you know, you are walking to a room and you find a freezer with a big-ass padlock on there. You got to think, well, what are they keeping? it? You know, your curiosity auto- automatically gets set off. I wonder what's in there.
1: I'm going to go find a screwdriver. Yeah. Drink that and then get a, a Phillips head to get me in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, these were all great emails. I mean, it kind of
5: – it's funny that the way they came in allowed us each to kind of have the focus there. You know, we got to talk a little bit about – Casey's Frankenstein Created Woman and Scott's Scream of Fear. So
1: very cool. Thank you for sending those emails in. And thank you for going back and listening to our entire back catalog. I, that's impressive. Yeah, thank you. Yes.
4: Glad you're liking it.
5: So for future feedback uh, contributions, how do people get a hold of us,
1: Scott? Well, they can email us at podcast at 1951downplace.com, or they can call us at area code 765 203 they can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1951downplace, or they can search for 1951downplace in Facebook, where we've got a Facebook group.
5: Next month, we're going to get our Christmas on, Hammer style, kind of. Cash on Demand takes place in the month of December, so we're going to cover that as our Christmas movie.
1: We uh, Since that's also Derek's birthday month, we allowed him to pick January, since we wanted to do Cash on Demand in December.
5: So we're going to be talking about Vengeance of She in January. No. I mean <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be talking about The Gorgon, which I'm really excited about. And I think somebody on Facebook mentioned how excited they were about that as well, didn't they? Somebody mentioned something about The Gorgon somewhere.
4: Yeah, there's a Gorgon's got quite a following, so
1: it's a good movie. I have not seen either Cash on Demand or The Gorgon, so this will be two, new, two more new ones for me. In fact, uh, looking through the, the list of future films, there isn't another movie that I've seen until next November. Wow. wow. That's exciting for
5: me. Because one of my favorite things about this show is when we do a movie that Scott's not seen because he's coming at it from such a fresh perspective still. I mean, I've been doing the show for a while, but I still feel like he's still the noob. Yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, only thing that, <laughs> the only thing that could change that will be the uh, listener pick month in July, which we don't know what that will be yet.
5: Good point, which we'll probably put that poll up uh, in January. I don't know. Do you wanna, when do you want to put the poll up for that?
1: Does it matter? Doesn't matter.
5: All right. Uh, maybe we'll put that up in Facebook. So incentive for listeners to check out the Facebook page. As far as cash on demand for next month, it is available as part of the Icons of Suspense collection from Hammer. It comes with a couple of other movies as well, so you guys can gals can get your hands on that pretty easily. So if you have any thoughts about cash on demand, send them in.
1: Looking forward to some more cushion goodness. Aren't we all? It's the only thing that man ever did. It's good. Yes.
5: <laughs> so do we have anything witty to say at the end or do we just go out on the end credits
1: of Joni loves Chachi?
5: <laughs> Joni
1: loves Chachi Official release coming. They're actually going to release Joni Loves Chachi, so keep an eye out for the guest.
5: You know, I know that we joke <laughs> about is. it,
1: but every time you bring it up, Scott, you sound so <laughs>
5: genuinely excited about it. Like, I can't tell. You, you, I, I think you really are a fan. I, I'm team Chach. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, actually, I am going to play a song that I pulled off YouTube. It's called the song it's called The Devil's Rides the uh, Bitch.
4: It's called The Song. It's called, it's, the song called the, it's
5: called The Devil Rides the Bitch. Cool.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> the Devil Rides the Bitch. I want to write a movie called that. That's an awesome film title. The Devil Rides the Bitch. Um, Did really, I think I broke Scott there for a second. <laughs> it's not hard to do. We're going to go out on a song called The Devil Rides Out. It's by the band Icarus. They are a band from the late 60s, and they put this song out the same time the film came out. Some reports say the song was inspired by press material of the film The Devil Rides Out. So we'll go out on that here in a bit. So you'll get to hear that, and you get to hear us in a month.
4: Lucky you. (laughs) That sounded (laughs) smirmy.
5: It really did. You fool! You fool. <laughs> I- I'm good with that. I'm done. <laughs> Put a fork in it. I'm out. I'm yeah. done.